Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know, the strongest among us are prone to wander. As my colleagues and friends have led us through the gospel according to Mark over the course of this semester, the life and the ministry of Jesus has been examined and contemplated. But today, I want to take a few moments to look over the shoulder of Jesus at those who were following him, his disciples. They and we are a ragtag group for sure. Jesus didn't call the disciples to study a book in a classroom. He invited them to follow him and to become fishers of men. And thus, all of life became the learning environment as Jesus modeled for them and taught for them what it looked like for the kingdom of God to be present. Jesus made the element of withness, being with him, foundational to his disciple-making relationships. Time and again, the evangelists document Jesus training the disciples on various mountains, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Feeding of the 5,000, the Olivet Discourse are all examples where some or all of the disciples learn profound lessons from Jesus on the heights. Those mountaintop experiences, much like the youth camps or summer mission trips that many of us have been on, are very impactful. Interestingly, though, far more of our lives are spent in the valleys where the mundane and even misery resides. And when it comes to following Jesus, it seems that the disciples learn much more from those failures than they did from their successes. The highlight reels of the gospel bounce back and forth between mountaintop scenes like the Mount of Transfiguration and the foot of that mountain where the disciples couldn't cast a demon out of a young boy, but Jesus could, and he did. Or what about earlier when Jesus obviously took a wrong turn? He was traveling from the region of Galilee, and he was on his way to Jerusalem, which is due south, but somehow he ended up in the northeastern part of that area in a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was there, likely on a mountainside, when uh, they were overlooking a pagan temple that was dedicated to the Greek god Pan, that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? John the Baptist reincarnated, perhaps, some of them said. Elijah dropped from a chariot of fire or some other prophet. But then Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And after conferring with one another, Peter spoke up on behalf of the disciples and he says, you are the Christ Matthew's account adds, the son of the living God. What a mountaintop moment that was. You see, many scholars argue that Mark's gospel account crescendos with that statement, you are the Christ. But Jesus immediately let Peter and the other disciples know that they didn't come up with that on their own, but rather the Father had revealed it to them. 
And that on that confession, Peter, the rock, and the confession of the entire quarry of stones known as the disciples, Jesus would build his church and that the gates of Hades would not outlast it. By the way, it's interesting to note that the gates of Hades was actually the name of that pagan pan temple that was nearby when Jesus taught them this lesson. The crowds over there look impressive, Jesus taught them, but you and what you're learning from me will outlast what's happening down there at that temple. This original Peter Pan story was certainly a mountaintop experience for the disciples. But just a few verses later, Jesus was explaining that it was going to cost his very life in order for the church to be built. And Peter, in his zeal, rebuked Jesus. Ironic, right? Peter had literally just confessed that Jesus is God, and now he's already telling God how to run things. I can relate. And I'm sure you can too. You see, First Peter was divinely inspired, and just a couple of verses later, his inspiration is diabolical. When Jesus looked at him and said, Satan, get behind me. From the mountaintop, the rock, Peter, had rolled downhill at a high rate of speed into the valley of failure. I think you get my point. There's nothing wrong at all with the mountaintops of life, but the graduate school of disciple-making has its most profound lessons taking place in the valleys of failure. Mountaintop lessons about who Jesus is are set against the backdrop of lessons the disciples would learn about themselves. Today's text displays this truth in a poignant way, so if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 14. And today we're going to be moving through four scenes in chapter 14, verses 26 through 72. What you're going to notice is that like a, a spring that trickles from a mountaintop, gaining both volume and speed, cascading down into a roaring waterfall, the disciples' collaborative confession back in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus is the Christ is going to grow progressively weaker and their faith will turn to fear, causing them to plummet into failure. But Jesus, in spite of their failures and denial, is going to prove to be steadfast and true to the plan of God. So the main idea today as we enter into this text is that as a disciple, God is often going to use the valleys of life to break us and rid us of our pride and autonomy. It's in those valleys that we learn that the gospel is our life. And when the gospel becomes our hope, brokenness and humility can then be used by God as a beautiful testimony to Jesus. So today we're going to focus in by way of juxtaposition. I'm going to highlight or perhaps lowlight the failures of the disciples and the four scenes in this passage. But what's in the background of these portraits, the disciples' failures, is going to serve to accentuate what we understand about the one who is in the foreground, the hero of the story, Jesus. So let's look at scene one, which takes place on the journey to the Mount of Olives. And here, uh, the, the contrast that you're going to see between Jesus and the disciples is that Jesus is the good shepherd who will be struck, and the disciples are the wandering sheep who are going to scatter. Read with me, if you will, and beginning in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd 
and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all of the disciples said the same. You see, this conversation in scene one took place as they were moving from the upper room in Jerusalem where Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet. There from the floor with nothing but a towel wrapped around his waist, Jesus taught them perhaps the most valuable lesson of Christian leadership, that it centers on a towel, a basin, and dirty, unworthy feet. Christian leadership isn't about titles. It's not about positions or popular opinions. And there in that upper room, they had also celebrated the Passover. But as Dr. Quarles noted on Tuesday, Jesus had explained to them that he himself would be the sacrifice. You see, those should be the freshest images in their minds as they descend from Jerusalem down through the Kidron Valley on their way to the Mount of Olives. But as we're going to see, they've yet to learn those discipleship lessons, but they're about to. Jesus prepares them with a warning. He says, you will all fall away. The Greek word there, skandalizo, is scandalous. First, it's used by Jesus in Mark chapter 4, verse 17, in the parable of the soils, to describe the rocky soil that has no depth. The ones who, because of persecution, would turn and run the opposite direction. It was scandalous. Here, they're all self-confident that they are the good soil, the disciples think, ready to bear fruit, but the circumstances are soon going to reveal how shallow the soil of their faith truly is. You see, Peter named the rock thinking it referred to his strength, but the rocky soil of his heart would need to be broken and crushed to dust before he could bear much fruit. Jesus frames this prediction by quoting from a passage in Zechariah. Garland, in his commentary, points out that the teaching at the Last Supper had possibly come from this text in Zechariah because there are many allusions uh, between chapters 9 and 14 in that prophetic book. The blood of the covenant is mentioned there. The kingdom of God, the Mount of Olives, and now this verse, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So this isn't some abrupt shift in their conversation. Rather, it's a continuation, perhaps, of the discipleship lessons that they had been learning while in that upper room, long before entering the Kidron Valley. In Luke's account, Jesus zeroes in on Peter, but he uses his pre-apostolic name, Simon, perhaps to get his attention that he's not as strong as he thinks he is. In fact, Luke's account says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. That would be an utterly terrifying statement were it not for Jesus' next words in Luke's account. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, Peter, strengthen your brothers. So even the sifting of Satan would be under the sovereign supervision of Jesus, the Messiah. What Satan attempts to sift as wheat, God is going to refine as gold in Peter's life. And Zechariah sets that all up, the impending failure of the disciples against the biblical backdrop of eschatological hope. 
In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, that description of the sheep scattering is going to be followed up by verse 9, where God says, I will refine them as one refined silver. I will test them as gold is tested. And they're going to call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. They will say, the Lord is my God. Though the phrase is not original to him, J.C. Ryle once said, the best of men are only men at their very best. Holy, useful, honorable in their place, but they're sinners after all. My favorite lyricist uh, who passed many years ago, Rich Mullins, captures it well. He says, we're frail, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, forged in the fires of human passions and choking on the fumes of selfish rage. But with these hells and these heavens so few inches apart, we must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. How? How, how is Jesus going to gather what's scattered here? How will their refinement prove God's commitment to them? You see, Jesus continues by setting the scattering in the context of the work that he is doing on their behalf. After I am raised up, Jesus says. This is now the fifth time in Mark's gospel account where Jesus predicts his resurrection. You see, the failure of the disciples will not be final precisely because Jesus' death won't be final. In fact, Jesus is going to regather what is scattered because his resurrection will be the centripetal force that does it. God's promise fulfilled in the resurrection means that Jesus won't just conquer death in the grave, but in doing so, he's going to enable his disciples and us to rise from the ashes of failure and to begin anew. Peter still doesn't get it. Even though they all fall away, he says, I will not. This is now the second time that Peter takes it upon himself to rebuke and to correct Jesus. And he once again is speaking from a place of pride and of self-confidence and he once again fails you see satan sifting has already begun to occur in the subtlest of ways in peter's life he makes a promise that he simply cannot keep in his own strength if you juxtapose that against jesus confidence in this story what you'll see is that jesus trusts the father to keep his promises even if he would have to suffer death for those promises to be kept The difference could not be more stark. Peter, trusting in his bravado and his strength. Jesus, trusting in the good character of his father, knowing that it will lead him even to the cross. You see, Jesus understood that his cross would serve to vindicate the character of God in the eyes of a skeptical world. Paul captures it in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, one of my favorite verses where Paul writes... If God did not spare his one and only son, but freely gave him for us all, how will he not also along with him give us all things? You seem, It seems that the prideful conversation uh, that, that Peter has been having is going to be one in his own mind. Interesting, you know, Jesus announced that one was going to betray him there at the Last Supper. But ironically, the disciples were more concerned about their own reputation than about their Lord's life. 
In his arrogance, Peter now looks around at the disciples around him, his brothers, and he tells Jesus, they're the falling away type, but not me. You see, Peter has made his stand on the mountaintop of uh, experience of summer camp, and he's declared that he's ready to die for Jesus, but he's yet to figure out that Jesus must die for him. You see, Peter's impending failure is going to teach him a lesson that his prideful declaration never could. Some scholars hint that the cock's crow that Jesus mentions here in verse 30 may refer to the watchman's bugle, known as the Galicinium, which signals the fourth watch of the night with the second call coming then at sunrise. Regardless of whether it's a bugle or a bird, Jesus is telling Peter, before sunrise tomorrow, these words and your promises are going to prove to be empty, but God's promises will remain. You see, Jesus has enrolled his disciples into that upper-level grad school discipleship practicum, and he has one objective, that they learn that they need him, not the other way around. It may be easier to proclaim our willingness to die for Jesus than it is to persevere in our willingness to live for him. One commentator says it this way, Jesus doesn't want bravado from his disciples. Their bravado only masked their weakness and kept them from asking for God's help. And that brings us to discipleship lesson number one from this scene. Jesus' kingdom will be established upon the bedrock of God's character to keep his promises, not the fleeting bravery of his disciples. You see, because they all refuse to learn this lesson, they wouldn't be prepared for the internal battle that they're about to face in the garden. And that leads us to scene two. It takes place in Gethsemane. This, in this scene, you're going to see that Jesus watches and prays, but the disciples are unaware of the significance of the moment, and they're sleeping. And then, verse 32, And they went to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And then in verse 36, Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you still asleep? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Then in verse 41, he came a third time and said to him, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. You see, Gethsemane is historically thought to be a garden, but some commentators allude to the thought that this saying may have actually taken place at a cave near the edge of that garden. Regardless, the name carries a great deal of significance. Gethsemane literally means the oil press. Ascending the Mount of Olives, it makes sense that there would be a place where those olives would be processed by crushing them under enormous and weighty stone slabs. The imagery here is vivid for us because Jesus is about to have the weight of the sins of the world placed upon him. Luke actually describes drops of blood dripping out from Jesus as he was crushed for our iniquities. 
In scene one, Peter had claimed that he was ready to die with Jesus. James and John earlier in chapter 10 had claimed that they were ready to drink Jesus' cup. All three of these had always had a front row seat to great things that Jesus was teaching and doing. They saw the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead in chapter 5. Together, these three saw him transfigured on the mount in chapter 9. And now Jesus takes them deeper into the oil press with him. Yet here their words are going to prove hollow, and all they're going to see is the back of their eyelids. On this very mountain, in his Olivet Discourse back in chapter 13, Jesus had warned with these words, and listen closely, Keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. See, watching here wasn't just a call for them to be looking out for external threats. Rather, as in the the, uh, Olivet Discourse, it was a call for them to ready themselves in anticipation. Though Jesus required his disciples to watch and pray with him, the disciples stayed at a distance and slept. Yes, the Olivet Discourse had framed the necessity of readiness for the return of the king, and Jesus, quoting Zechariah as they approached the garden, continued that theme. But for the king to return, he first had to depart. And the discipleship lesson here would be that they not be caught off guard and unprepared for that departure. Upon finding them sleeping, Jesus calls to Peter once again, and he says, Simon to get his attention. Garland notes that their drowsiness at this crucial moment is due to their failure to see how crucial this moment actually is. So they slept. But this is a reminder that followers of Jesus who do not pray and try to follow on their own power will always fail. Jesus had slept in the bow of a boat in the midst of a raging storm, and there his rest exemplified trust in his good father. Here in a quiet garden, though, he found no rest. The disciples had been delirious because of the storm, but here in the quiet garden, all of their resolve to die with Jesus could not keep them awake or prayerful. The disciples' unconcerned stupor is contrasted against the strong word that describes what Jesus is accomplishing here in the garden, ekthambeo, intense and crushing mental and emotional anguish. It would precede his physical suffering. I like the way Eugene Peterson captures it in his uh, paraphrase, The Message. He says, Jesus plunged into a sinkhole of dreadful agony there in the garden. Jesus' sorrow drives him onto his face in prayer where he would cry out a declaration of trust in the character of his father, the one who had brought him to this moment and then fell silent. At the beginning of his ministry, when starving in the wilderness, Jesus had clung to the words of God spoken to him some 40 days earlier where God had said, this is my son, with you I'm well pleased. But here, there's no audible voice. There's no dove descending. There are no angels ministering. Jesus' plea is met with silence. And yet still, Jesus trusted the Father. He wouldn't be delivered from death. Instead, he would be delivering his disciples through death. And this isn't the first time that God's going to illustrate a covenant while the beneficiaries slept. 
Think back to Genesis chapter 15, where God would pass between the torn flesh of an animal to convey his commitment to bless Abraham. Earlier in chapter 14, Jesus had told his disciples that it would be through the flesh of an it would be through his broken body rather that God would enact a new covenant. And now here in the silence of the garden while those disciples slept, Jesus embraced becoming a curse so that the sleepers could receive the blessing of life. Frederick Knowles wrote a poem that succinctly captures the loneliness of this moment for Jesus. Joy is a partnership. Grief weeps alone. Many guests had Cana. Gethsemane had only one. Remember, back in Genesis 2, God had placed the first Adam into a lush garden with unlimited possibilities for obedience and only one tree to test his trust. But here, the second Adam enters into another garden, a place named for the very occupation of crushing what's brought to it. The oil that flowed from the crushed olives couldn't compare with the oil of the Holy Spirit that would flow out anointing once Jesus had been crushed. The first Adam ate from the forbidden tree and unleashed a curse on all of creation. But the second Adam was being prepared to hang upon a tree and be cursed so that he could unleash a blessing, the blessing of God on all of creation. To accomplish that cosmic restoration, the Father would require Jesus to drink the cup of judgment. And Jesus trusted in the Father's good character, drank the cup to the dregs as a profound way uh, to display his worship and obedience. It was a cup that he drank in utter isolation. You see, circumstances aren't just what's going on around us. The greater threat is often what's happening inside of us. And the three disciples that followed Jesus deeper into the oil press had interpreted the quiet surroundings as an indication that nothing significant was going on. All the while, Jesus was plumbing the depths of the cumulative sin, rebellion, and failures of the world. And that brings us to discipleship lesson number two. The disciples failed to watch and pray, and now they'd prove unready to bear witness. You see, the silence of that garden on that night had been an illusion. There was a spiritual battle that was raging that was far more substantive, though silent, than the boisterous external opposition that they're going to face in the next scene. The self-sufficient bravado exemplified in the first scene produced the inability for the disciples to see the significance of what was taking place in scene two. Now that brings us to scene three, the betrayal. And in the betrayal, what you're going to see beginning in verse 43 is Jesus, though innocent in humility, surrenders to the plan of God. Judas betrays Jesus with his lips. The other disciples betray Jesus with their feet. Peter is going to betray Jesus with both his lips and his feet. Verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Verse 45, and when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. Verse 49, but let the scriptures be fulfilled, and they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him 
but he left the cloth of linen and he ran away naked. You see, even Judas that we see in this scene had known the nearness of Jesus just hours earlier when his feet were being washed by Jesus in that upper room. But now Jesus draws near to, or Judas draws near to Jesus not to wash his feet in service, but rather to kiss his cheek in betrayal. There's a stark difference that we have to recognize between physical and relational nearness. Judas was comfortable being physically near Jesus, but he was relationally and devotionally distant from Jesus. This reminds me of a parallel in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost son, who, though was physically distant, he trusted the character of his father and drew relationally near. All the while, the elder brother had remained physically near to the father while relationally distant. He distrusted his father's good character. Though that parable was aimed at the religious elite who failed to see what Jesus was doing in forgiving sinners, Judas had now proven to be one of them. And like the elder brother, his betrayal of Jesus in this scene displays the utter untrust of the Father's plan. Ironically, Judas' betrayal wouldn't thwart the plan of God, but would rather serve to accelerate the pace for the Scriptures being fulfilled. In his account of this scene, John notes that Peter must have awakened quickly and in a bad mood. In John chapter 18, it says, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Now, Peter had slept through Jesus' acceptance of this cup. Failure to watch and pray with Jesus resulted in Peter having nothing to offer except for his misplaced bravado. Once Jesus was seized by those accompanying Judas, all of the disciples would flee. And thus they would show their collective promise of faithfulness that they had made back in verse 31 to be empty. Typically, disciples were to leave everything behind to follow Jesus where he was leading. Here one disciples, whose scholars often say is Mark himself left everything behind, including his clothes, to flee in the opposite direction. Why is a detail like that important? The answer is because this was not the end of the story for Mark. This is a particular significance that this detail is here, if you believe like so many do, that Mark's account is largely the result of his association with Peter. So this account doesn't hide, but rather highlights both of their failures, which leads us to discipleship lesson number three. The distinguishing mark of a true disciple is where we go from the point of failure. Failure need not be the final word. And that brings us to scene four, the denial. The denial. This is going to take place between... Uh, verses 53 and 72, where Jesus begins by bearing witness to his true identity before the corrupt and temporal high priest, and there Jesus is condemned. And though I don't have time to read between verses 53 and 65, I want to point out a few things here that will uh, bring the discipleship lesson home. Note there are seven references between verses 53 and 65 to the Greek word martyrion in this section, 
Whether witness, testimony, or testify, it's clear that now is the, the time that Jesus had been preparing the disciples for. You see, back in Mark 8, when Jesus' identity had been revealed to them, they proclaimed on a private mountainside in Caesarea Philippi that he's the Christ. But the mountaintop declaration fell silent in this trial. There were no faithful witnesses to be found other than Christ bearing witness to himself. Once again, Garland captures the irony of this in his commentary where he says, when we read this account, we must see how easily we can become a crafty high priest, a devious Judas, a lying false witness, a cowardly Peter. It's then that we realize that it is we who are on trial before Jesus, not vice versa. In the second half of this scene, beginning in verse 66, what we're going to see is Peter denies Jesus, the eternal high priest, before servants. And yet he finds forgiveness. Verse 66, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were also with the Nazarene Jesus. Verse 68, But he denied it. And then down in verse 71, but he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how he had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And Peter broke down and he wept. See, in the beginning of today's text, they all referred to the disciples as they were making an empty promise to never deny Jesus, even proclaiming their willingness to die with him. Then as Jesus embraced the Father's will to crush him in scene two in Gethsemane, they all had no excuses for their inability to watch and pray with him. Emerging from the valley of the shadow of death that was the olive press, one disciple drew near to Jesus, betraying with him with a kiss, and they all fled in fear. And now in this final scene, Jesus is led to the slaughter in the convoluted system of so-called justice that was espoused by the religious elite. And here they all, the religious hypocrites, condemned Jesus as he stood alone with no company other than the assurance of his father's promises. And it is here in this final portrait of a failed disciple juxtaposed against the backdrop of Jesus' submission to the will of the father that Peter would be forced to come to grips with the accusing voices crescendoing with the crowing rooster. And in that moment, the relational distance between Peter and Jesus produced a flood of bitter tears. It may sound like I'm railing on Peter here as having no background. Don't miss the fact that Peter's misplaced bravado at least got him to the location where Jesus was taken. He and John both had made it to the high priest's home, but that had then separated. You see, Peter's concerned and he's perplexed, but he's unprepared for the moment when the spotlight would turn back on him. In the mockery of the trial that's taking place upstairs, the false testimonies were flying. But here we see another trial ensuing down below where Peter finds himself on the witness stand. What he had declared back in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus is the Christ now escaped him. And here the weakened warrior loses heart 
And the result isn't his promised willingness to die with Jesus. Rather, Peter's testimony was denial, disowning, and cursing. Garland summarizes again, Peter's trial here in the courtyard is a parody of our Lord's. While Jesus is under fire inside, Peter warms himself by the fire outside. As Jesus confesses under immense pressure and hostility that seals his fate, Peter capitulates under the gentlest of pressure in order to save himself. Peter's threefold denial matches his threefold failure to watch and pray with Jesus in Gethsemane, and it shows him to be much like the shallow, rocky ground in the parable of the sower. Daniel Darling notes of, as, of this scene, and I quote at length, that rooster crow that he heard on the night of his denial was a common sound in the cacophony of daily life in Israel. So imagine every sunrise after this fateful day that he'd be reminded of his failure. Like God's best servants, Peter would walk with a limp. He'd bear the scars of his past failures. This is the same journey towards leadership that we see throughout the scriptures, Darling notes. Abraham had Ishmael. Jacob had a hollowed out thigh bone. Moses had a stutter. Paul, a mysterious thorn in the flesh. You see, we've come to understand that our scars are not marks of which to be ashamed. Luke, the meticulous journalist, records a particularly haunting detail in his account. Luke chapter 22, then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Darling goes on, Calvary will break you, and yet it will lift you up. And so we shouldn't see this as Peter's end, but rather the beginning of his life's work. When Peter looked into the mirror every morning, he saw a strong, successful, brave warrior. But Jesus' piercing look on that dark night revealed the real man a weak and frail disciple. And most importantly, Peter's denial shows us something about the Savior. Jesus turned and looked with compassion at his friend who was at that very moment sinning against him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't go to the cross for the perfect or for the whole. He died for the sick and for the broken. He died for you. And for me, end quote. You know, this isn't the first time that God uses an animal to humble a man. Balaam's donkey, Jonah's worm, are now followed by Peter's rooster. Viewed as a symbol of pride, the sound of which would crush Peter every morning and subsequently bring about his humility. It was perhaps the most important discipleship lesson that Peter could learn right there in the valley of his failure. It's quite interesting that in the 400s, a shrine was erected, possibly on this very spot at the high priest's house in Jerusalem. It's called the Church of St. Peter, the Galicantu, the rooster's song. A shrine commemorating Peter's great failure. You see, the, this is the last mention of Peter until the morning of the resurrection. He wasn't there when Pilate handed down the sentence. He wasn't there when Jesus carried his cross down the Via Dolorosa. Peter wasn't sitting beside Mary at Golgotha. He wasn't the one to go and ask for permission to bury Jesus. And he wasn't the first to go to the tomb. In fact, 
The next time that Mark would mention the name Peter is over in chapter 16, verse 7, when he says, Go, tell his disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before you into Galilee. You see, fortunately, John fills in a few details for us at the close of his account in John 21. Three times he says, Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Alistair Begg notes that the threefold denial is met with a threefold restoration. His life isn't destroyed by the betrayal, but it is marked by it. And that apparently taught him how to truly follow Jesus in humility. As disciples of Jesus, we all fail. What makes the difference is where we go from those moments. And we have no excuses. And no matter how distant we may be, when we hear the crow of the rooster and the bitter tears come, it doesn't have to be the end of our story. Dane Ortland captures this in his recent best-selling book, Gentle and Lowly. Many of you perhaps have read it. He says, contrary to what we expect to be the case, the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing we go, the deeper Christ's solidarity with us. As we go down into pain and anguish, we're descending ever deeper into Christ's very heart, not away from it, because as deep as our sinfulness runs, even deeper still runs Christ's gentleness. And that brings us to discipleship lesson number four. Restoration is available when we confess our weakness and acknowledge Jesus' ability to both save and restore. So wipe away the tears, hear his voice, and start walking this morning. Because you see, the Peter that we see in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost is quite different than the failure that we see here today in Mark 14. And even greater, there in Acts chapter 3, Peter stands as a bold witness saying, there is no other name under heaven by where men must be saved. And that to the very people that he had run from in today's passage. See, long after Peter was restored, having learned these discipleship lessons in the valley of his failures, he could write these words in 1 Peter chapter 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Kintsugi is an art form that's popular in Japan. It's the art of repairing broken pottery with gold-dusted lacquer, highlighting the broken places, those Golden cracks reveal the breakage and repairs, a part of the story of the object. It's something that gives value rather than to be master disguised. Roger Lothar writes that Kintsugi displays the gospel in our lives where the glory of God is revealed in fragile, broken vessels. The glory of our lives, our value, and our beauty comes from Christ displayed through our weakness. Disciples, our lives can be marked by failure without being marked as failures. This morning, through his word, perhaps the rooster is crowing. Jesus is locking eyes with us. Let's turn to him in the valley of failure. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that your mercies are renewed to us every morning. And so we pray for 
the valley of vision, the valley of our failure to be a place where we see your grace and mercy applied through the sacrifice of your great son who trusted your promises, was crucified and raised again for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.